And this evening I'd like to talk about change, loss, spare change, right, all kinds of change. The process of birth and death of all things and the poignancy that's there over and over in our lives as beautiful things disappear and new things arise. Anijawata sankara upatawa yadamino upakitawa niruchanti desang vupasamo suko. This is an ancient and traditional Buddhist chant in Pali, a language like Sanskrit. And the meaning is Anijawata Sankara, all things are impermanent in change. They have the nature to arise in a certain form for a certain time and then to disappear. This is so of all created things. Whoever understands this and lives in harmony with this will find happiness. Anijawata Sankara Upatawa Yadamino Upakitawa Niruchanti Desang Upasamosuko If we begin to reflect about change, we see it all around us. It is one of the three basic qualities of all existence that the Buddha spoke about, change, its nature. And all we have to do is sit still in meditation for a few minutes, and as our attention becomes present and deepens, the breath starts to show its changes, our body sensations start moving, thousands of thoughts come and go in a short period of time, sounds come and go, and the more carefully we listen with our attention to our body or mind, the more what seems solid becomes a stream, a river. In fact, there's a phrase in teaching in the ancient Buddhist text um, that, uh, about a concept called santati, which means things happen very quickly. Santati is the description of the illusion of solidity. And that illusion can be understood in an easy way when you go to a movie theater and you look at the screen and everything seems very continuous and real and alive. And then if you turn back and look at the projector, you see that there are so many frames per second, 16 frames a second or 35 frames a second. And it's a series of quick still frames. In the same way, as we begin to pay attention in our meditation, that which is obscured by our busyness and all the thoughts we have starts to show itself. And all the sensations and thoughts and feelings and hundreds of moods and micro-moods of the day begin to display themselves. Our life is a river. Often we don't recognize the change until there's some shock, until there's an earthquake, or an accident, or a sudden illness. You know, and then all of a sudden we remember, hey, this is a changing life we live in. 
the last few weeks for me in traveling, there have been small ways, reminders of waking up. First, my own aging. Um, I've just entered my 49th year, and I'm sort of reflecting as one does, approaching 50. And also, last week I saw my grandson for the first time, who was two months old, in, in upstate New York. So I'm a grandfather, and all of a sudden, thinking, well, am I too young to be a grandfather? I guess not. Here I am. <laughs> I am, so I guess I am. You know, and sort of reflecting about that whole change in role. And then I got a phone call that my sister-in-law was in a freeway smash-up, and her car was totaled, and she um, came very close. She escaped with almost nothing, with a few minor injuries from something that could have just been the end of her life. And I went and I led a retreat on the East Coast, and a friend who I hadn't seen in 15 years or 18 years sent her beautiful daughter to this retreat. She was 24 years old and was just uh, diagnosed with a brain tumor and wanted to come and sit. And I had seen her daughter when she was six years old, this beautiful little girl. Now she's a beautiful young woman. Um, and the changes just happen like that. Buddha said, karma changes like the swish of a horse's tail. New babies, marriages, people losing their jobs, moving, divorce. We know that things will change. We know that we will die. The only thing we don't know is when. But it's guaranteed. If you want the weather report, it is things will change. Now, how to live in this world of change? Zorba the Greek was walking along one day in that story and saw this old man planting an almond tree. The man was 95 years old. Almond trees take 20 years to bear fruit. He said, what do you do, an old man planting that almond tree? It won't even, you won't be around to see it bear fruit. And the old man said, I live as if I will never die. And then Zorba said, turned to his companion, and he said, I live as if each day was my last. Which is right, boss? <laughs> Often in Dharma talks here, we've talked about the nature of life as expansion and contraction. The heartbeats, the breath, the seasons that change around us and the seasons of our life cycles like becoming a grandparent or being married or whatever the next cycle is for you. The menstrual cycles of women, the, um, the trillion galaxies that go twirling around one another like Ferris wheels. And somehow our lives are a part of this process of change. Spiritual practice can be easily confused with self-improvement. Chogyam Trumpa called it spiritual materialism, where we undertake it in a kind of religious sense, what Alan Watts said of religion as a kind of grim duty that you're supposed to do. And that if we do it right, we'll fix ourselves and make ourselves better and less neurotic. We're going to have teacher meetings in a, in a few weeks here with all these Buddhist teachers. I'll tell you, they're a really eccentric group of people. <laughs> but anyway... But we think we'll make ourselves better and have a more pleasing personality, you know, like a kinder, kinder and gentler personality, and be more grounded and better in tennis and all these things if we do our spiritual practice right. 
And although there may be some improvements in some ways, more deeply, the awakening of the Buddha, which is there for each of us, is not about self-improvement at all, but about opening to the facts of life, to the truth of what is as it is, and finding our peace in that. Now, finding peace in modern society is particularly difficult. It is. Each time I come back from the third world, from Mexico or India or Bali, I am struck by the incredible speed of our culture and the information, the overload of information in the culture. It's like Mullah Nasruddin, who thought the marketplace was going too quickly for him and poured a bottle of liniment on his butt to kind of get himself moving so he could move around at the speed as everybody else in the marketplace. That's called phone tag or something like that, right? Where it just goes in. But anyway, since the 15th century, when the ruling paradigm, the ruling vision of how we see the world has been the vision of science, we have been taught to see the world as this vast machine that we could understand and work within the laws like a big clock somehow. And somehow what's happened is that whole metaphor of the big machine of the universe has taken over and our lives become like one. We have faxes and, and answering machines and call waiting and, and all of those kinds of things. You know, remember the story of the impatient dowager who lived in the apartment house and she was there pushing the button for the elevator this was a fancy apartment house it still had an elevator operator and it took a while for the elevator to come up she said where have you been impatiently and he looked back and he said lady where can you go in an elevator <laughs> right? the question is where are we going in all of the busyness and the mechanicalness of the society that we find ourselves in. When we were flying back from the East Coast, my wife, Liana, and daughter, Carolina, sitting with Caroline, and we left an early morning flight, so we got off the ground just after sun, the sun rose, and she noticed how um, the sun seemed to stay kind of low in the horizon for a long time, because we were flying west and she said daddy it seems like the morning is really stretching out and so we talked about time and that we were going in the direction of the sun and then she said oh could you fly as fast as the sun you know how kids are thinking about that and i said well if 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 what you're asking about is could you fly at the same speed as we see the sun i said sure you'd have to fly there are other planes that can do it at a thousand miles an hour approximately she said, oh, that would be fantastic. She said that it would always be sunrise and you'd always have breakfast, right? <laughs> right? It would always be 7.45 in the morning and your whole life would be scrambled eggs and sausages and those little white plastic things they serve you on the airplane, right? And we both started to think about that together, that you could pick the time that you like. Maybe you like sunrise or sunset, or maybe you like lunch. And you get in your plane, right? And you'd head the right direction, and you just keep going, and it would always be that time. I mean, this is the kind of thing Einstein talked about, only it's really very, it's quite available for anybody who has a jet plane. And, you know, you could just go round and round the earth, always living at 12.45 in the afternoon. 
And as we talked about it, it became quite apparent, this mystery that we call time. You could feel it. Because we make up time. Time doesn't really exist in the way that we think. The past, there is no such thing. The past is simply a thought, a memory that we have just now. The future, anyone seen it? The future doesn't exist either. It's an imagination, another thought we have. There's only this moment, like that jet going around the world, just this timeless moment. And all there is, is in this now, this eternal present. On the last day of our trip, we saw this huge rainbow. And I'm just looking at it thinking, who made this? I mean, what an amazing thing that light should, should make rainbows in the sky of these colors. And then, of course, we got on the plane and we saw news clips of Somalia and Bosnia and things. And there's rainbows and there's warfare and racism and starvation, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows of the earth. And we live in a culture where our pillows say, do not remove tags under penalty of law, right? <laughs> and our, as kids, we spend 12 years in the classroom at little desks to shield us from the mystery. But life is really far more mysterious than the little desks would lead us to understand. In his writings, as he began the journey that he described, Dante said, Midway in life's journey, I went astray from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in a dark wood. A wonderful way to begin a dis description. And I think that we all have done that at some time. Midway in life's journey, I went away from the straight road and woke to find myself alone in the dark wood. There are no roads that are straight. Part of the place of spiritual community has been to create over time immemorial in all civilizations ritual, sacred space, a sense of community, to regain our connection with mystery and to touch that which is timeless in the midst of the changes of life. To enter into ritual or communion or meditation or something that supports that opening to a, the greater dance of our life. So when we come to sit in meditation, Buddhist insight meditation, the practice of awareness or mindfulness. We sit and listen, and when we do, we find the point of rest. We can find the point of rest at the center of our being. We encounter a world where all things are at rest in the same way, when we are at rest. And then a tree becomes a mystery, a cloud a revelation, and each person we meet, a cosmos whose riches we can only glimpse. This is from Dag, Dag Hammarskjöld, the founding, one of the founding fathers of the UN. When we come to that point of rest in our own being, we encounter a world where all things are at rest. And then the tree becomes a mystery, and the cloud a revelation, and each person an unexplored cosmos.
That's why doing nothing is so important in our life. Sitting or going on retreat, especially in times of change. To give ourselves the space to digest, to feel, to weep, to grieve, to laugh, to open in new ways to what is around us. What is fundamentally, what is most fundamentally asked in change is not our ideas about how things should be or not some resistance to the truth, but our compassion. Because change is difficult. It is hard. So often we meet people who are going through a hard time as things change. It's like the first noble truth of the Buddha, the truth of suffering of life, which is expressed as loss and change, inevitable. So what's asked is not our ideas, but our compassion. For somehow it is also the change that brings our heart alive. Rilke wrote at one point, Surely all art is the result of one's having been in danger, of having gone through an experience all the way to the end where no one can go any further. All beautiful things that come out of us come out of our facing change or death or the mystery of life. So to sit is to learn to be with what is, loss and gain and beautiful and painful things, death and birth, with a kindness of heart and compassion. It is also to learn, spiritual life, to trust in something greater. You could call this true strength or courage. Remember the story of the young couple who decided to give their grandfather a present. He had never flown in an airplane before, and they rented, you know, they paid to get a ride in one of the small planes at an airport near his farm in Tennessee. Put old grandfather in the airplane. He was kind of nervous about it. Went up, and they flew him all over the valleys and mountains he knew and over his farm. He landed back there, and they met him, and they said, How'd you like it? He said it was fantastic. It was great to see. Were you scared a little bit? He said, yeah, I was still a bit nervous. I never really did let my weight down fully. (laughs) That's kind of how it is with us, isn't it? The Ojibwe Indians write, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. And there is some rhythm in which we live where the breath breathes itself and our heart opens and closes like a flower and our body moves in all of its mysterious ways that we can trust because we are a part of this movement of life. There's a kind of courage that comes when we let let our weight down on the airplane, when we really let ourselves trust that which is this much greater movement of life. And it's all around us. A poem called A Testimonial from New York City. I've lived in this city 25 years, and all that time I have dropped things. Tissues, letters from women in Santa Fe, money, 
the keys to my house, books by Jacques Prévert, and all this time you, the people of this city, have pointed to me and said, hey, sir, you, you dropped something, and then I picked it up. You have watched over me all these years, and I've waited till now to thank you. <laughs> to trust in something that's greater that we are a part of, the fabric of something greater. Clarence Darrow, a great lawyer, he wrote, Given a child falling into a river, an old person in a burning building, and a woman fainting on a street, a band of convicts would risk their lives to give aid as quickly as a band of millionaires. Kind of an interesting statement about our nature, that in certain moments we get there for one another. Seeing this little baby, my grandson, Jacob, and holding him, it's fun after a while to kind of get back into the rhythm, walking kids and diapering and holding them. There's this sense that came of the renewal of life in generations. Many of you probably know this anyway, of the big cycles of one generation after another after another. Even in the difficulties, something else wants to be born. There's a Chinese proverb that says, you can only go halfway into the darkest forest. Then you are coming out the other side. <laughs> right? So the trust in something greater is to see the eagle in the egg, or the butterfly in the chrysalis, or the sage in the sinner in us all. Right? The Tibetans, who've gone through such a difficult time with what the um, imprisonment of so many people and the, the killing of so many, still one of the great lamas said, we do have altitude in our favor. They said, Tibet is so high that the Chinese come, but they don't tend to stay very long. <laughs> Only 50 or 100 years, and then they go back down. Right? And that this has happened a number of times in the last 2,000 years. So trust in something that people will say, hey, you drop something. Trust in the cycles of life that halfway into the darkest forest you start to come out the other side. And trust in our place in the middle of it, as the Ojibwe say. All the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. We belong here in this place. This poem I like to read from Rumi. I'll read again just because I enjoy it. In times of sudden danger, most people cry out, Oh my God, why would they keep doing this if it didn't help? Only a fool keeps going back where nothing happens. The whole world lives within a safeguarding. Fish inside waves, birds held in the sky, the elephant, the ant, the wading snake, the ground, the water, the spark of the fire all exist and are held in this great divine. Nothing is ever alone for a single moment. This trust has many names in Buddhist teaching. Sometimes it's called beginner's mind. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi said, the goal of meditation is always to keep our beginner's mind. Or another Zen master, Sansanim, called it don't know mind. Where are you going? Don't know. I mean, do you know? 
Where did you come from? I mean, way back there, where before you were born. Don't know. What is love? Don't know. How about consciousness? Don't know. He says, good, keep don't know mind. That don't know. It's not to add some new knowing, but an openness. What the Christian mystics speak of as the cloud of unknowing. And Alan Watts calls the wisdom of insecurity. Not a knowing, but an openness, a readiness, a spaciousness in the face of change. Another thing sitting in meditation can teach us, and spiritual practice gives us a time to learn about, is the fundamental ability to let go. And it happens right away when you sit and you see how little control you have over your own mind, for example, over your feelings, your thoughts. Or if you haven't noticed that yet, how little control you have over your children, all the plans you've made for them about how they should live their lives. And we all have strategies that we make to try to feel safe in the face of this great movement of change. We plan. We reflect, we weep, we cling, we condemn. And as we sit in meditation, we begin to learn or see that these are just the waves of our mind. Our mind gets a little agitated trying to deal with all this change in the midst of it. And when we see that in our own way, we can begin to let go. To see things with beginner's mind. George Bernard Shaw wrote, that my tailor is the wisest among my friends. Each time he comes, he takes new measurements. <laughs> your lover, your wife, your husband, your children would, would be grateful for that as well from you. So to learn that is really to learn the art of letting go. But what we see instead when we first look is is how incredibly strong our habits are. To think this way, to be afraid of that, to fear that, to plan this, the habits of body, of feelings, of mind. I had a very good friend, a beloved friend in this community who, who died of cancer after a long period of um, illness and so forth. And she took a very long time to die. People were around waiting for her to die. And waiting and waiting was like weeks and months, you know. And every couple of days she would get up from bed and go pay the bills and stuff like that. And then she'd go back and lie there and be close to death. And she did that like weeks on end. You know, got to get up and pay the bills. Our habits are very strong. <laughs> and what happens if you sit and look and listen inside is at some point it begins to dawn on us that they are not who we are. We've taken them. We believe they're who we are. They're sort of our operating instructions of how we're supposed to do it. But in fact, we're incredibly adaptable and flexible. And you'll learn that again, I promise you. So one of my teachers said, if you would like a mantra, a sacred mantra that you can take, here's one in English for you. Let go. You can say it in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, or even if you're on that plane going, whatever time you pick to go around the earth, let go, let go. You can say it in meditation, you can say it when you drive. It's a wonderful mantra. It's free here. You can have it, right? 
Now, I like to read this passage from a letter to an insurance company once in a while, so I will. <laughs> Entitled, On Knowing When to Let Go. From this letter to the insurance company, in response to your request for additional information in block number three of the accident reporting form, I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You wanted more information. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new three-story building. When I completed my work, I had 500 pounds of brick left over. Rather than carry them down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel um, using a pulley on the side of the building. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went back to the ground and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure the slow descent of the 500 pounds of bricks. <laughs> you will note in block number 11 of the accident reporting form that I weigh 135 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. <laughs> Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the second floor, I met the barrel coming down. This explains the fractured collarbone. Slowed only slightly, I continued my ascent, not stopping until the knuckles of my right hand were deep in the pulley. Fortunately, by this time, I had the presence of mind to be able to remember and hold on tightly. It was not the time to let go of the rope. However, the barrel of bricks just a moment later hit the ground and unfortunately the bottom fell out. Devoid of the weight of the bricks, the barrel now weighed approximately 50 pounds. I again refer you to my weight in block number 11. <laughs> As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. It goes on. Ah. So, Either we learn to let go, or we learn to let go later. That's how it works. In some way, the whole of meditation is the art of letting go. To find a place of peace in the midst of the winds of the world, the eight winds of the world, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, gain and loss, praise and blame, to find a peace in the midst of all of that. Now, this week um, I was told I found out that my, my new book, A Path with Heart, is on the Chronicle bestseller list, so I was very pleased. For, a couple, for the last couple weeks it was. So on Sunday I went out to buy a paper, right? To see if it was still on the list. And then I, was, well, I walked down to Woodacre Market to buy the paper, and I got the paper, and I was going to open it and look inside, and I thought to myself, now am I attached? <laughs> and then this other voice said, of course you are, otherwise why would you walk down here and buy the paper? Um, so you should all go out and buy more copies of it, right? <laughs> At least it's not like Anne Lamott, who's this wonderful writer in San Rafael, a local writer who... Um, she wrote about when, when her novels come out, she calls all the bookstores locally with different voices and fake voices and said, do you have the books of Anne Lamont? I think her <laughs> Make sure they have them in stock. So peace comes when we can let 
things be, pleasure and pain and joy and sorrow and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, gain and loss. To let go is to let things be and not judge. I mean, there I am, and am I attached? Yes, I'm attached. I can see it. So what to do? Okay, so I'm attached. <laughs> Just to be kind. To be without anxiety about non-perfection is the line from the Zen ancestor. It's not the way we wanted it. It's not the way our ideas would have it. And while we can respond to change and act in creative and appropriate ways in the world, most often for the big things, they're not in our control at all. Instead, what's asked is to be present, to live in the present, step by step, day by day, to discover life in the present moment, in the reality of the present. And to fashion from our life, it said, a beautiful garland of flowers, of moments, of presence, of good deeds. Kabir, the Indian mystic poet, says, instead of going to Tibet or Benares or all these holy cities, why don't you go here and now? What is found there, what is found then, is found now. There was a wonderful sage, a woman teacher in Bangkok, one of the great masters of the Buddhist tradition in Southeast Asia, Ajahn Neb. And she had taught in this enormous monastery, Wat Saket, a great royal monastery with huge kind of towering red roofs and great golden Buddhas and wonderful art. And sort of this little old woman would be in there teaching. And because she was wise and gracious and, and beautiful in her spirit, all kinds of people would come to see her. And there would be members of the royal family and politicians and generals and all kinds of common people with their problems and artists and whatever, a stream of people. And I used to watch her. So all these people came, and they'd all want things, and they'd bring their worst difficulties to her. And she would just sit there and meet each person as they came. And she stayed in this place of incredible peace because she stayed where she was. It was an amazing thing to watch. And I used to, I, I asked her, I said, how can you do it? I mean, you, you know, the, the queen is coming and the, the, these politicians and these people and everybody. And she said, um, I don't think about it much. I just try to be with uh, whoever is here now. And everything seems to follow from that. Just that simply. It was so beautiful to see, to be where we are. Doesn't mean one can't plan, but you do that in the present. It's from Margaret Mead. If you pay attention in every moment, you form a new relationship to time. In some magical way, by slowing down, you become more efficient, productive, energetic, focusing without distraction directly on that which is in front of you. Not only do you become immersed in the moment, you become that moment. What a wonderful way to live. Let the beauty of our life be where we are, it is said. So again from the Tao Te Ching, rushing into action 
you fail. Trying to grasp things, you lose them. Forcing a project to completion, you ruin what was almost ripe. Therefore, the master takes action by letting things take their course. She remains as calm at the end as at the beginning. What she desires is to unlearn. She simply reminds people of who they've always been. She cares about nothing but following the Tao, and thus, in this way, she cares for all things. Maybe the last quality or way to speak about entering into the life of change, which is here all the time, every step, every breath, every day anew, is to remind us about forgiveness. It's what allows us to move on in our life. Otherwise, without forgiveness, we are caught repeating the past over and over and over again. And we see it in big ways in Afghanistan or Angola or Bosnia or all these places. But that's just one example. And there's so many ways we do it in our own lives. Forgiveness is an expression of renewal, a letting go, forgiving of nature or God or our family or whatever it is. And if you pay attention inside and listen, you'll discover that your body loves forgiveness. Our bodies want to let go. Forgiveness is a letting go. Ed Brown's poem goes, Always I insisted you alone were to blame. This last instant, my eyes open, and I offer you all the tenderness and forgiveness I withheld for so long. You know, after you go swimming, or after you've sat quietly for a while, or gone for a hike in the mountains, or had a good massage or something, and your body opens, how happy it is to be open again. Forgiveness is that same opening in your heart as well as your body. To forgive doesn't mean that you condone things that shouldn't happen. You might say, never again, and really mean it. Stand up for that. which see what is unjust, and, and really put your life in the way of the repetition of that. So it doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean that you should judge yourself for not forgiving. It takes its time. Forgiveness is simply the movement of the heart, this process that allows us to start anew again, to forgive ourselves so many things, I wasn't there on time. I didn't do it right. I wish I had done it that way. To forgive others. C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> it's not so easy. But it's a part of what allows us to be born again anew each day in our life. My good friend and, and very beloved teacher the Cambodian monk, Osananda. I talked a few weeks ago about his peace walk across Cambodia during these elections. And they began the peace walk from the Thai border. They went into the Khmer Rouge territory and they met in this temple. And in their first big meeting, somebody came by with a machine gun and sprayed their meeting with bullets and rolled a grenade into the meeting, which fortunately did not go off. It would have killed many of them. 
and they were frightened and didn't know whether to continue, whether to walk at all. But then they said, if we can't, if we, the monks and nuns, can't trust enough to walk, how could there ever be peace in this country? And so they began to walk, and Gosananda talked about how Buddha had saved them. He said, Buddha saved us. Of course, a couple of weeks later, he came to this town that had a big Catholic church in it, and he met the priest there, and he said, Jesus saved us. Right? It's the same. And as they walked through the villages and the mountains and took each step, they would deliberately take each step and make a prayer out loud for peace, loving kindness, forgiveness, peace, over and over. And the villagers would come out and they would sprinkle the villagers with water they carried, the water of forgiveness, the water of loving kindness. And some of the soldiers would come out and put their guns by the side of the road and say, yes, we too wish that we could have peace. So this is what forgiveness is. And we each have some place in our life to forgive in order to go to the next step, the next day with our heart open, to forgive ourselves or someone else. Somehow in all of this change, as we sit or walk or come to a spiritual center for an evening as this, to meditate, is to find that great spaciousness of heart, our own Buddha nature, out of the vastness we are born and into the vastness we die. Existence is a circle and we err when we measure our life with the limits of the cradle or the grave. There's something much greater going on. So we take the time to breathe or to sit and listen or the space to walk up on Mount Tam or by the ocean, Muir Beach, or by the bay, to come back to our own body and breath and our place in nature. And to remember that to be alive is to change. To be alive is to experience again and again change. The changes we want, the changes we don't want, doesn't matter. This is what life is, over and over again, within our own body, in our relationships, in our community, when Zen Master Suzuki Roshi was asked about the meaning of Buddhism, he said, I can sum up all the teachings in three simple words. Not always so. Not always so. Just that. When we realize the truth of change and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. So spiritual practice is not about achieving or becoming or being or making ourself, but resting in this moment, being alive here. And in that we become connected with all things. In our connection with ourselves, we truly make a connection with others. You say you can't create anything original, don't worry about it. Create a cup from which your brother or sister can drink. So let your eyes close for a moment, if you would. Feel your own breath and body.
the movement of your life. And as you sit quietly, you might reflect, become aware, let yourself be aware of what changes are happening now in your life. And how have you touched them? How do you respond to them? With fear, with planning, with acceptance? What is it time now to let go of? or to grieve. To forgive. To accept. When we realize the everlasting truth that all things are in change and find our composure in it, we find ourselves in nirvana. Let me ask you a question. We have a few minutes to go before the closing chant that we'll do together tonight. How do you deal with change? When there's significant change in your life, what have you learned? Or what is your way of dealing with that? What have you discovered? Anyone, please. Yes. One, two, okay. First, ask for support and help. Thank you. Yes? I remind myself it's really okay to be here. I remind myself it's really okay to be here. Thank you. Others? Yes? So whatever particularly difficult changes he goes through, he also accepts that whatever feelings there are, however hard they are, he accepts that they too will change, knows that they will change. Thank you. I find that the pain is in the resistance to the change. I say, could be better, but it could be worse. <laughs> yes? I've never been 
Uh-huh. So you meet change like you imagine surfing to be. That's great. Yes? I become quiet. Just take quiet time. Please. Many religions focus on that which is changeless, the timeless, the unchanging, the unborn, and the undying. That's another language for what the Buddha called nirvana also, that which is uh, the still point in the midst of all things. Yes. Thank you. Please. In the midst of change, I try to slow down without cutting off from things and to go outside and look at the stars. Thank you. Yeah. I find that the, that the most difficult part about change is my thoughts about the change. Mm. And when I just give up the thought about it, the change happens I find that the most difficult part about change is the thoughts that I have about the change. And when I just give up the thoughts, I find that the change happens by itself quite naturally. Thank you. Yes? I find myself walking through the path, asking to walk through the path of space, because when I walk through the space that way, I feel less pressed. So to walk through the path with grace, asking for grace, it's like praying in a way for that grace, and then you feel less trashed when you get to the other end. <laughs> Thank you. A couple more, please. Just try to stay present to whatever is going on. I just try to stay present to whatever is going on. Thank you. Yes. I remind myself that the moment that's here, it's already here. I can't do anything about it because it's here, so I can either accept it or I can resist it. I remind myself that the moment that's here is here already, and there's nothing I can do about it, and that I might as well accept it since the resistance is more painful than the acceptance. Yes? Uh, to give me courage for the next one. To give me courage for the next one. Yes. One more. I think I notice change more when it's leaving something, losing something, than when it's change is coming to something, something filling up. Ah. So that's like noticing the half-empty cup instead of the half-full cup, or seeing. It's true, at times we can be more tuned to the loss of things than to the birth that's there of something new. Uh, it becomes uh, quite interesting in that sense to begin to study change, or to get interested in change, and to become interested in your own responses and strategies, to begin to listen to what it is that we do in our bodies and spirit in the face of this ever-changing stream that is, a, is our life. So you might play with that over the week ahead. And the chant that we'll do then is the chant of change. And it's a chant that's done for birth and death. And, and uh, um, So let's do it together. I'll recite the phrases, phrase by phrase, and then you can chant with me. 
and it will be for ourselves and for the changes in the earth around us and for all of those who are involved with the execution at San Quentin, particular, if it happens, particularly, what is his name, the man? Mason, who, who may die. Anicca vata sankara, Anicca vata sankara, Upatava, Yadamino, Upakitava, Upakitava, Niruchanti, Desang, Vupasamo, Sukho, Anicca vata sankara, Upatava, Yadamino, Upakitava, Upakitava, Niruchanti, Desang Vupasamo, Sukho. All created things have the nature to arise in a certain form and pass away. They come into being for a time and then vanish. To understand this and live in harmony with this brings peace and happiness. Anicca vata sankara Upatava Yadamino Upakitava Niruchanti Desang Bhupasamo Sukho Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.